Marini's Media. Totally Football Show, European edition. In a world where we've all become home fixtures, today we're talking continental news, including a comforting Neymar to Barcelona story, and enjoying part two of our Champions League history. It's 93-94. From Monaco to Milan, from Cork City to the Ali Sami Yen, it's the real story of how Milan gave Cruyff quite a turn. It's the Totally Football Show, in association with Paddy Power. That's right, young boy never broke again there with his social distancing anthem outside today. And here we are again inside your ears with a bit of James Horncastle. Hello, guys. Mm, a soupçon of Julian Laurence. Bonjour, bonjour. And a big dash of Alvaro Romeo. Hola. Hola, guys. How are you? Well, I'm well, yeah, Alvaro. You know, good. Mm. <laughs> I'm well. How, how was your week, Alvaro? Very quiet. I've been self-isolating for about 10 days now. So wow. I pretty much, uh, you know, explored every corner of my little house. And I, see. I feel like a lion in a cage. I think Paolo Di Canio was saying that. So right. I am another lion in another cage. Wow, crikey. Yeah, good uh, person to associate yourself with. Alvaro's politics are the same <laughs> as Paolo Di yeah, Canio's. Same thinking. <laughs> Have you been following the e-gaming in Spain, Alvaro? Yeah, and it's been... Amazing, really. They managed to to get some money that will go straight to the Spanish NHS. And um, some of uh, the best La Liga players have been playing FIFA, representing their own club. And it's been a really successful thing. Uh, if you know who the winner was, uh, it was a player who is injured now. Marco Asensio won the tournament for Real Madrid. Ah, oh, fantastic. So all the Liga clubs had a representative? Except Barcelona and Mallorca because they have a contract with the other video games maker. That's so very Pro true. Evo have a yeah. deal with Barcelona and Mallorca, and so they couldn't take part in this charity thing. That's rubbish. Yeah, and uh, apparently Sergio Roberto got to know on the day. So I think Barcelona tackled that a little bit late. Por ahí aparece Joaquín que mete el centro, el remate. Gol, 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 gol. Pero esto qué es? Qué barbaridad de partido. Apareció Manolo Lama. Dos goles de forma consecutiva para el Betis que le da Dana en la vuelta al partido. It's a great idea, Alvaro. Did you actually watch any of the games? And and how rewarding was it? Well, uh, I think that they, they got 200,000 uh, euros. So I think that it was kind of successful. It was also a good entertaining uh, and a good uh, replacement for live sports, of course. Uh, many good players got on board, the likes of Marco Asensio, Lucas Perez for Alaves, Marcos Llorente for Atletico de Madrid. And uh, some of them, the ones that, that lost, they want a revenge back now because uh, they are not happy with uh, Marco Asensio winning the tournament. But yeah, in general, it's been a weekend in which uh, Spanish uh, newspapers and televisions uh, have shown Quite a good imagination to to have a good programming uh, on TV. For example, the Spanish uh, national TV shown the, the World Cup title winning uh, against Netherlands. Uh, and I think that, uh, generally speaking, Spanish sports fans have had uh, enough uh, entertainment on television and online. And, of course, the Totally Football Show. Uh, there for them most days in some way, shape or form. Alvaro, 
First off, uh, the news of the death of Lorenzo Sanz, the former Real Madrid president. Yes, and uh, this is a goodbye to a self-made man, uh, a man who started from the bottom of the social scale, uh, nothing to do with uh, the MBA and masters uh, people that uh, are in govern or in uh, finances at the minute. He started as a bellboy in a hotel and uh, he died of coronavirus. Uh, sadly for him, he followed the rules to an exaggerated extent. He was feeling very bad a couple of weeks ago at home, but he thought that uh, staying at home, he would be more helpful for the Spanish NHS. And he stayed at home for too long. When he went to the hospital, it was already a little bit late to treat him. Uh, he went uh, straight to the intensive care. And uh, yeah, uh, sadly, he passed away on Saturday. He was the president of Real Madrid when they won La Septima in 1998. It was uh, 32 years uh, wait for Real Madrid not winning the Champions League. And some former uh, Real Madrid players have uh, called this Champions League like the most important title in Real Madrid history because it was a nice breaker for everything that uh, came subsequently, winning La Octava, La Novena and all the Champions League that they have won after that. And Lorenzo Sanz was... Uh, Basically, the, the guy who triggered all that, the guy who made a tremendous investment uh, at Real Madrid. In the pre-Galacticos eras, he brought many good players, the likes of Mijatovic, Zucker, Clarence Seedorf, Roberto Carlos, Bodo Ilner, and they ended up winning the Champions League. So, requiesca in passe for this man. Indeed, Alvaro. In Germany, Wolfsburg have said they are looking to resume training despite the coronavirus pandemic, with small groups of players working out at their stadium. There's been similar talk in Italy. Uh, Napoli had mentioned the idea and Lazio firmly uh, said that they were going to start training again and then went back on that and said, no, actually, they're not. Where are we at with that now, James? Well, Lazio put out a statement uh, on Monday morning saying that uh, they are not going to train and they don't know when they're going to come back. Um, that is more in line with the rest of the league um, because uh, Lazio was seen as the most strident in terms of wanting to get back to normal, wanting to get back into training, resume the, the season as, as soon as possible. Perhaps that is because yeah they are as close as they've been um, to winning a league title um, since 1999-2000 uh, and there's been a lot of pushback um, against Claudio Lotito, the Lazio president, who's been very kind of um, well, he's always had kind of the loudest voice in these in these meetings um, that the league has. Um, so I think some common sense uh, finally seen by by Lazio in, in in that regard because it just seems very uh, very difficult to predict when players can go back and when it's when it's safe to go back. I think um, particularly given. The line from the the players' association, Damiano Tomasi. I think it's it's very difficult to see teams go back into training, um, actually physically at the training ground, um, in the near future. Strange times, which actually made it all the more reassuring to get a little uh, Neymar transfer to Barcelona rumor on the internet this morning. Word that the Catalans hoping to activate Article Seventeen uh, to liberate the Brazilian from his gilded prison there in the French capital. Uh, Jules, what is Article 17 and how much should it be worrying PSG? So it's a, it's, it's, it's a rule that I've been on for a very long time that clubs don't always use, but you can use if you want to. When a player is only has two years left on his contract and amongst his five-year deal, they can ask FIFA to basically set the price for the transfer of that player, which is all good. Uh, but I don't think that FIFA will put a price tag on Neymar for less than 150 million. So 
it's probably what PSG would have asked anyway. It sounds like Barca are going to go to FIFA and FIFA are going to say, yeah, for 25 million, you could get him. So, you know, that's the key and everybody's going to be happy and it's a winner for Barcelona. It's very likely that the price decided by FIFA, if, if that's what Barca decide to do, would be very similar to what PSG would have asked anyway. So on that level, I don't think there's much news in it, uh, except that what FIFA will say and PSG will have to follow, although they probably could go to CAS as well. But the question in Paris at the moment is, will Neymar really want to go to Barcelona? Because right now, apart from the fact that you can still play with his mate Messi and, and, and Suarez when Suarez will be back from injury, if you look at it right now, Barca is not the most appealing of clubs either, considering it's a bit of a mess with Kike Setien there. You're not really sure if he will be there. You don't really know what the squad will be like next season. Uh, and there's a few people in Paris that say that actually Neymar is quite happy where he is right now. And it would take a bit of convincing him for him to sign for Barcelona. And there is always the problem of money as well, because uh, Barcelona, the club, has been in talks with the four captains of uh, the first squad, because probably they will have to reduce their salaries from now on, because um, Barcelona's salary cap goes beyond the 70% of the budget. And at the minute, the club is uh, finding it really complicated to, to pay the, the full salaries. Yeah, it does seem a strange time for Barcelona to be springing 150 million or so for Neymar. Brilliant. And that's the news. Next up, your Twitter questions. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Screech Sensi, hello to you. Screech Sensi wants to know why does Jules keep going on about the Haaland Snapchat that turned out to be fake? This is the Paris Belongs to Me Snapchat picture, which supposedly provoked PSG into trolling the 19-year-old en masse after their victory in the Champions League. Jules, has it been confirmed as a fake, the uh, picture which had caused all the problems? So I thought he sent it to his mate, so it was not to be actually publicly published. Ah. Uh, but that then the mate sort of like put it out there, and that's how it got there. I didn't know if it was a fake. It might be a fake. I think the, the, the point still stands in the fact that it was not just Haaland on the day of the second leg with that Paris is mine photo. It was everything that happened after the first leg, after the Borussia Dortmund win last weekend. Axel Witzel, Emre Chan saying that he wanted to face Juventus in the quarterfinals. Even Vatska and his comments on uh, PSG and, and, and all of that. You know, like, we don't buy superstars, we make them, that kind of thing. I think he's, it was the accumulation of everything after the first leg, not just that photo of Haaland himself. Right, although it was specifically Haaland who they, the, the, the team reacted to en masse. But uh, OK, uh, Jack Tanner, one for Alvaro, what's your favourite ever athletic season? has to be 97-98 and 2011-2012. Why 97-98? Because Athletic de Blau finished second under Luis Fernandez, a French manager. Fantastic guy, so funny. And uh, oh, so integrated in the city as well. Yeah, more and funny than he was a good manager, to be fair. I don't know what happened that season, but it was a miracle. <laughs> He did well. He did well for us. And then... Uh, he's, the guy who put, he's the guy who put Ronaldinho on the bench at PSG, by the way. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's got his uh, chiaroscuros, obviously. And in the 2011-2012, uh, Marcelo Bielsa led Athletic de Bilbao to two finals, uh, the Cup final and the uh, Europa League final as well. So those two seasons are my favourite ever ones. Aniket says if transfers ended tomorrow, who would have the best team in five to ten years? Oof. Borussia Dortmund. Is that right? Yeah, possibly. 
That's a good call, Alvaro. I like that, particularly with mm. that forward line. I thought that was we'll, that. we'll park um, that there for now, then, with Borussia Dortmund. And here's another one uh, that requires a bit of thinking. Miguelito Saltamontes says, if the top five European leagues each created an all-star team like MLS does, who would win? Well, Miguelito, that is a heck of a question. How about then we ask all four of our continental pals to each put together an 11 for their leagues for next week's show, and then we'll play them off against each other. What do you think, guys? Deal. Looking forward Sounds to good. a 3-0 win. Woof. Up next, uh, we're going to be digging up another long-gone season in... Zombie Football. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. Zombie football. Yep, back from the pit of history, it's another slice of truly vintage European football. And after last week's tales of Champions League Season 1, power corruption and Bernard Tappy, Jules, this week, as per your suggestion, we're going with 93-94, Wenger's Monaco, Kreuz Barcelona, Capello's Milan and Richardson's Cork City. Andrew Lang says, is the narrative around that final... The best in Champions League history. The build-up was mouth-watering, but the tables were flipped completely over 90 minutes. Pure theatre. Well, Andrew, let's find out. That's right, Jules. Who's that? That's I am, the uh, rappers from Marseille. We... Big hit back in France in uh, August 1993 as the second Champions League campaign got underway. But <laughs> the biggest rap that the Marseillais were taking was, of course, in the courts, where OM had just been banned for corruption from Europe and Tappy was heading to jail. With the French champions out of the picture, the runners-up in Ligue 1 the previous year, PSG, were offered their place in the Champions League, but Jules, they refused. Why? Yes, there's, there's a few reasons for that, James. All politicals, uh, really. The first one is that at the time, PSG were owned by uh, Canal Plus, which is the equivalent of, of Sky Sports in, in the UK, for example. And Canal Plus, it would have been a very bad decision for them because they had so many subscribers from the south of France and from Marseille fans to have taken the position of Marseille in the table and have taken that title. So economically, it would have been a disaster for, for Canal Plus to have allowed PSG to do that. And then the other one was the mayor of Paris at the time, uh, who was Jacques Chirac, by the way, who uh, then became president, who thought it was not a good idea because of the rivalry between the two cities that Paris took the place of Marseille and just got that title and then went into the Champions League and everything that went with it. So, for example, when it, where Inter took Juventus titles in those years, uh, PSG thought more economically and politically than anything else, really, that it was not such a good idea. That's why Monaco, who finished third that season in 92-93, behind Marseille and PSG, ended up in the Champions League that year. Remarkable. That Monaco team, let's talk a little bit about that with the Arsene Wenger, of course, manager. Quite a group of players. 
Yeah. Yeah, it Jürgen was really good. Klinsmann. They had a mix. Yeah, Jürgen Klinsmann, James, you're right. They had a mix of uh, players who went through the academy, like Emmanuel Petit, for example, who then went to, um, to Arsenal, Lilian Thuram, obviously, both from the academy. And then players like Jürgen Klinsmann, like James mentioned, who, who they obviously signed, who had a very good relationship with, with, with Arsene Wenger. Enzo Schifo, the former Belgian number 10, mm -hmm. who was playing in France before, who played for, um, for other teams, who joined as well. So you had a, a mix of, of youth as well and experience that was really good with, with Wenger at the hand. My favourite early 90s random striker as well, Victor Ikpeba. Ah, and Yuri Jukaev as well. And Claude Puel, he was young. Claude Puel was young, you're right. He was a defensive midfielder with, with a big engine, running a lot, uh, not the best technically, but a proper leader. I think he played over 600 games for Monaco. He only played for Monaco pretty much uh, for all his career. So you really had a mix of those very talented, gifted players like Jokaev and those a bit more hardworking people like Petit and Puel in midfield. You had Blondo at the back, who was a really tough defender. And then you, you had playmakers as well, like, like Schifo and Goldscore, like Klinsmann. It was a really, it was a big mix. And it's a team that uh, in 92 lost the final of the, uh, the Cup Winners' Cup against Werder Bremen, for example. So they, they, they already had a, a good pedigree in Europe. And this season was very much seen like, OK, a bit like Denmark in 92 at the Euros. Because they were not supposed to be in the Champions League, a lot of people thought, you know what, maybe with a bit of luck, they could actually go fine there. And remember, it was the old format where you had two rounds home and away, and then you had those group stages. So with a bit of luck, you could easily go to the semi-final. Right, which indeed, of course, they did. 42 teams were involved in this edition of the European Cup stroke Champions League. Once again, as you mentioned, pretty strange format. The previous year, as we discussed last week, it was two rounds, then a group stage, then two winners straight into the final. This time, the group stage produced four teams meeting in semi-finals, but one-legged semi-finals with the group winners getting home advantage. What do you make of that, James? Yeah, it's it's ever so bizarre now. I wonder if Andrea Agnelli looks at this and thinks this is the format to go with for the next uh, for the next ten years. Um, but yeah, weird mix of two legged games, as you say, to to start the first two rounds, then that group stage. And I mean, I, I, it is quite funny looking back on that semi final between Milan and uh, and Monaco because yes, it's at San Siro, but it's against the Milan side, which I think had drawn five games, nil nil. And also in that game, played 50 minutes with 10 men and still mm -hmm. won 3-0. <laughs> Worth mentioning that uh, Barcelona was uh, about to lose in the first round against Dynamo Kiev. Mm. They managed to win 5-4 in the aggregate. So I don't think that Agnelli will be choosing a format like this in which you could basically uh, be casted away so quickly. But uh, the format is uh, really interesting. Seriously, right. it's fantastic. I don't think Agnelli would be too keen on the array of teams that featured that year either. You had Beitar Jerusalem, anybody? Floriana of Malta? Rangers? Mm -hmm. Cork City, who got knocked out by Galatasaray in the first round. Galatasaray were to produce one of the shocks of the season in the second round when they put out the reigning English champions, Man United, who were already well clear in the second Premier League season. But as usual at that time, fared pretty disastrously in Europe. They got held 3-3 by Galatasaray at Old Trafford after being two goals up. And then they made what became an infamous trip to hell, a.k.a. the Ali Samiyen. 
Yeah, and there's some amazing YouTube footage of that. I remember this like vividly as a as a child watching that game, and the news reports of them getting into the airport and just how hostile that atmosphere was, and how the stadium at the Ali Samiyen was full like four or five hours before the game. It really was kind of felt like the biggest game in Galatasaray's recent kind of European history, and you could imagine, particularly after the first leg, you know, I really recommend going and and watching watching that again because. Galatasaray 2-0 down at Old Trafford, coming back to be 3-2 up, um, and then Cantona scoring an equaliser 10 minutes from time. And some of the goals, Arif's first one for, for Galatasaray, uh, I think yeah, even Peter Schmeichel, who was one of the best goalkeepers in the world, if not the best goalkeeper in the world at the time, could do nothing about, about that shot. Arif, shoot at A reminder of how kind of young and inexperienced uh, not only United were at that stage, but English football coming out of uh, of the European ban after Heysel um, and having to kind of relearn uh, how to play at that level. And, uh, and Galatasaray certainly kind of taught them a lesson and taught the kids that class of 92 were coming through a big lesson in terms of the kind of atmospheres that you uh, you might expect and how important it is to kind of hold your nerve um, in uh, in those continental clashes. Mm. The second game ending goalless uh, with a red card for Cantonar at the final whistle and then a, a bit of a set to with police. Cantonar gets hit on the back of the head by Trunch and Baron Robson tries and steps in and, and ends up needing stitches after being clattered by another a man from the forces of local law and order, Jules. No, I was going to mention the red card by Cantonar. This is not the kind of atmosphere with that kind of disappointing result that Cantonar likes, really. And you could imagine how boiling it was inside during the game for United not finding a... Uh, a way of breaking through that Galatasaray defence. Galatasaray, by the way, who had only Turkish players, I think, apart from, from one or two, maybe. So he was not... The, Haji. It, but Haji was not there in the second leg, I think. I don't think he was playing the second leg. I think he was a team full of Turkish players with not much to them, really. And I think the frustration from Katana showed on that red card. Hakan Shakur was there. Yeah. Those are cough yeah. sweet brand, Hakan Shakur. Yeah, an he Uber driver now. Mm. Is he? A limo driver? No, an Uber no, driver. An Uber. Uber. Yeah. Yeah. That's can't right. Go back. Yeah. In the States. No. Yeah. 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 Right. Interesting. Back in those days, though, he was part of the Galatasaray team who made it through to the group stage along with seven other sides. And this is when the competition became called the Champions League. So there was them and elect Werder Bremen, Spartak Moscow and the four teams that would make it to the semis, uh, Monaco, Bobby Robson's Porto, Barcelona and Milan. A game of the group stage, arguably, was uh, an extraordinary match between Werder Bremen and Anderlecht, the Belgian champions, which saw Werder Bremen 3-0 down with 24 minutes to play, but ending up winning 5-3. The most extraordinary thing about this being that their manager was Otto Rehagel. <laughs> yeah, the weird thing is, James, about that Werder Bremen side is that uh, they would have the joint top score in the Champions League that season, and I think this will be, well, it's the only time, and I, don't, I can't see another time when a, a New Zealander will end up kind of uh, joint Rufa. top scorer in this competition. Yeah, Winton Roofer, who is not a roofer, he's a goal scorer. <laughs> nice. and, and what about Ronald Koeman as well? He topped the goal scoring charts as well with eight goals. He was a central defender, and uh, he's, I think, at the highest scoring defender in football history. He was so important for Barcelona's success. Well, We'll hear more about that because into the semis go Barcelona and Milan, who both win their matches 3-0 over Porto and Monaco, respectively. 
So we are all set for the final. Kreuz Barcelona Dream Team against Fabio Capello's Milan Machine, a side who were appearing in their second of their three straight finals. Now, Milan, we talked about last time on, on the show, the, the, that vintage Rossoneri lineup, but who exactly were that Barcelona team? So it's August 1993, and while Spain rocked to the sweet sounds of Los Rodriguez at Sin Documentos, Johan Cruyff is ready for another season of European dominance. Since taking over Barcelona four years before, he has won them the Cup Winners' Cup, the Copa del Rey, the European Cup, and three straight Liga titles. He's got a team featuring Michael Laudrup, Fristo Stoichkov, Ronald Koeman, and Doni Goikachea, Chiki Bergerestein, and Pep Guardiola, to whom he's just added that summer, Homario, Alvaro. No wonder they call it the dream team. They were astonishing, really. They they were capable of uh, playing really beautiful football, and uh, they scored uh, many goals that season, up to 91, I believe, uh, which uh, was a little bit of an oddity uh, at that time, uh, almost like uh, 25, uh, 26 years ago. That season, they managed to beat Real Madrid 5-0, in which it was called uh, La Manita. But in that victory against Real Madrid, it was a little bit encapsulated, the problem that was going to rise in the future. The fact that only three foreigners could play. And Michael Laudrup was not starting in that game against Real Madrid, and in which, by the way, Romario scored a hat-trick and Michael Laudrup came uh, on in the second half just to give an assist to Romario and he didn't celebrate that goal. Michael Laudrup didn't celebrate that goal because he was uh, in bad terms with uh, Johan Cruyff on the other hand and Risto Stoikov. He was on the bench after coming off from Michael Laudrup. He celebrated on the bench. So Mm. there was a little bit of a strange atmosphere at uh, Barcelona. Yes, they could score uh, many goals. But they had uh, some volcanic characters in the locker room. Uh, Romario, for instance, had been sent off in January for punching Diego Pablo Simeone. Uh, He got suspended for four games. And that was the team that Johan Cruyff had. Of course, they were good. Of course, they had some of the best players of the 90s at the peak of their powers. But there were some problems in there. Yeah, Just to put into perspective what um, what Alvaro is saying about the goals in this team, uh, Romario ends... Uh, the season with 30 league goals. Um, and Stoichkov is the top scorer at the upcoming World Cup in 1994, which Romario wins. It's part of that Brazil team that beat uh, Italy on penalties. And Stoichkov wins the Ballon d'Or. So, if, you know, that's your front two. Fairly uh, formidable um, going into a, a final, which seemed all set for them. Stoichkov scoring some fantastic goals that year. Do you remember the one in the Champions League against Austria Vienna? Just a remarkable bit of juggling and, and finishing. He'd previously been um, banned for two months for stamping on a referee's foot. Yeah, well. That was Risto Stoichkov. He was a player that uh, loved that kind of atmosphere. I remember that uh, every time Barcelona played at Santiago Bernabeu, he was always trying to do the first fault of the game 
to get the stance against him. So he really liked that. That was Risto Stoichkov. And that Barcelona, for all the talent they had, uh, they didn't win the, the league comfortably because there was a team called Deportivo de la Coruña who mm. uh, came into Coruña the last... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> came into the last game of the season uh, topping the table. And Barcelona ended up winning the league just because Valencia goalkeeper saved the penalty that uh, Jukic uh, had never had to take because Bebeto so, didn't dare to do it. Baby swinging's Bebeto uh, didn't take the kick. And with literally the last kick this of the season, Barcelona end up taking the title, their fourth straight, on goal difference. And scenes at the Camp Nou where they were all clustered around their radios, listeners, because in those days there were no other ways of, of, of knowing what the score was. Yeah, it was a Saturday evening and uh, I remember watching that game uh, in a bar with my parents and with my parents' friends and everyone in Spain that day was watching football. It was quite late, probably 9.30 or 10pm already when uh, Jukic missed that penalty and uh, it has become an iconic celebration, the celebration of González, the goalkeeper of Valencia that day, the one that saved the penalty of Jukic because he wasn't normally playing for Valencia, I think that the the first goalkeeper had an injury, and uh, González became the protagonist of a season that theoretically was never keeping uh, any any glory for him. One of the key Valencia players, Giner, admitted in years after that game that uh, Valencia players uh, got payment from Barcelona for saving that penalty, some sort of bonus, and uh, well, the celebration kind of represents a little bit what uh, it was at stake also for a, for a guy like González, who was allegedly someone who should be aloof to, to what happened in their title race, and suddenly he saved the penalty and he, and he celebrated it a lot, maybe too much. Maybe too much, all right. Well, they'd won their fourth Liga title in a row, Barcelona, and four days later, they were ready to try and add another European crown. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begambleware.org. Listeners, if you've always wanted to hablar espanol, sprecher auf Deutsche, or parler couramment le français, or indeed parler l'italiano, but you didn't think you had the time to attend a language class, well, now might be the perfect time. Why not get on board with Babel? Babel brings language classes into the 21st century with online courses and daily 10 to 15 minute lessons designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. You learn through interactive dialogues and real-life conversations, while Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you improve your pronunciation and your accent. Ooh la la. No matter if you're using a desktop, mobile or tablet, Babbel syncs your progress across all devices. Try it for yourself today by heading to babbel.co.uk and downloading the app for free on Android or iPhone. That's B-A-B-B-E-L, so like Marcus, not Ryan, .co.uk. Babel, learn a new language and make it your own.
on Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. It's the 18th of May, 1994, and here we are in Athens, all set for the final. Barcelona, the dream team, against Milan, the Italian pragmatists who no longer had the three Dutchmen, who'd only scored 35 league goals all season, who relied upon their incredibly miserly defence, but who had half of it out suspended for this game. No wonder, Jules, they were the underdogs. Yeah, that's right. I can remember very clearly uh, all the debate all around Europe saying how Barca was so good and so strong and there was that they were a huge favourite. There would not be a game that Barca were going to smash this Milan team and that Cruyff with his total football was was perfect. And, and like you said, no Costa Cota, no Baresi for Milan. I think Lentini and Van Basten were also out. I think Papin was out as well. Mm. So it, it looks very much like a full-strength side on one one side with Barcelona and then a, a, almost a B team for Milan. Van Basten had been out all season and Lentini as well following that car crash on his way back from seeing Mrs. Scalacci and, and all that kind of thing. And, and Papin wasn't really a starter either too much. But how key were those missing centre-halves for Milan, uh, Costa Curta and Baresi? Well, I mean, Baresi was the captain and remember one of the most iconic things about that Milan side or that era at Milan was him kind of stepping up and calling offside. And uh, I think that was going to be something that uh, Maldini uh, spoke about. They were going to miss that. It was something he had to learn because he always took instruction from Baresi and Costa Curta. And all of a sudden he was going to be playing um, in in central defence for, uh, for Milan. Christian Panucci, who was only 21 um, at the time was going to be coming in and playing at, uh, at left back um, as well. But this was a Milan side that certainly before Capello um, and under Saki had often trained where they would just have four defenders against an entire 11 um, and stop them from scoring. So it was something that I wouldn't say they were necessarily used to, but they were prepared for. Mm. Um, and I think what is really surprising again watching the game back is just how many chances... Um, that this Milan side was able to create. I mean, even with all that talent um, out at the back, but also, as Jules mentioned, up front um, as well, um, they were they were rampant in, in, in some stages um, of this game. Well, Barcelona were supremely confident coming into the match, already taking pictures with the cup, and a lot of their players discussed afterwards maybe that they were resting on their laurels a little bit. I think the big thing, and this is something that, that uh, we touched on before, was that expectations-wise, everybody thought Milan, who'd only conceded two goals in the entire Champions League campaign up to this point, were just going to come in and try and defend, try and hold out against pretty much the greatest attacking team in the world. But for once, Capello came out all guns blazing. Quite a surprise to see Milan begin like that and quite a surprise to see Daniele Massaro as the, the guy scoring the brace. Yeah, because of all the strikers that Milan had in that era, um, Masado was seen as the least glamorous one um, of, of the lot of them. Um, certainly one who'd, who'd cost the least, was someone that just Capello trusted and I think someone uh, Capello often took criticism for playing because ultimately he um, he seemed to be symbolic of someone who could follow out the coach's orders and put in the shift and sacrifice himself rather than be the super technical um, striker that we saw from Jean-Pierre Papin or Van Basten. Um, but Masado has this has this ability of coming up and scoring 
um, in big moments, like he does in this game. He would go to the, the World Cup um, in, in, in 94 um, with, with Saki. Um, and as I say, was again one of those people who was just kind of trusted by these, these coaches who wanted to be in control of everything. Um, rather than leave the initiative um, with the players. But certainly um, that night in Athens wrote his name in history with, uh, with those two goals. Mm-hmm. Second of which had put Milan 2-0 up going into the half-time break. And whatever plans Cruyff had at half-time didn't really work out for him because Alvaro, the, the third goal, is the stuff of legends. And the mistake of uh, Zubizarreta, probably, because uh, he could have done a little bit better uh, in that goal. In fact, uh, that was uh, the end of Zubizarreta as a Barcelona goalkeeper. But uh, yeah, that third goal was beautiful. I think Savicevic uh, proven himself to be an unplayable player that night. He, he was quick, uh, he was uh, undetectable for Barcelona defence. And the third goal was uh, probably the nicest of that final. Maybe the Saïlis goal was very beautiful as well, but I believe that the finish of Savicevic, uh, considering he did it from a very tight angle, has, mm. to, has to be the goal of the final, yeah. So Koeman's tried to pass the ball upfield, Milan intercept, hoof it back up. Nadal has time, but I think Dali's on the ball a little bit, and Savicevic, for the second time in this game, nips in, takes the ball off him, and from an extraordinary angle just instinctively pulls off this this lob that I, I think you're being a bit unfair on Zubi Zareta, but maybe not. I mean, it's 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 a perfect, perfect parabola. Yeah, it's a, it's a very yeah. nice parabola, but there are many goals in Zubi Zareta's career in which you say, yeah, the striker did amazingly, but maybe Zubi Zareta could have done it slightly better. There are many goals like this. And I don't know if this... Stay in uh, Nigeria. For example. Well, in that, in that, in that one, the finish of the Nigerian player wasn't that great anyway to be Zarreta was a trem- uh, did a tremendous mistake that day but I believe that the problem of Barcelona uh, coming into this game was how confident they were I mean I just want to quote Johan Cruyff saying Barcelona is favorite in football in terms Milan's game is nothing special but they are very well organized you don't see managers saying things like this ahead of the Champions League final that was how confident Barcelona was and mm. I think that Milan just gave them a, a really tough lesson. With another thing he said going into the game was the difference between the two teams was illustrated by the fact that he'd brought in Romario to Barcelona and Capello had gone out and bought Marcel Desailly from the previous year's uh, winners, Marseille. Desailly, who effectively played as a defensive midfielder, and the Rossenerian Croy saying, well, that tells you all you need to know about these two teams and their approach. But Jules, Desailly had the final word on this day. Albertini, Desai, solo, goal, solo quattro, solo quattro. I think that goal and his celebration as well, which, which is very iconic back home, where no one really believed he could score a goal like this when he opened his right foot and just curled the ball in the top corner, which was absolutely unbelievable. And for someone who won, as you said, the, the Champions League in 93, and not many players have won them back-to-back with two different clubs. I think Paolo Sousa, Maybe did it with uh, with Dortmund and Juventus, and yeah. I think maybe Clarence Seedorf. I'm not even sure, but Samueletto as well. Yeah, Samueletto. But other than that, it was really rare, and and to do it in two different positions, like you said, centre back for Marseille, and then a bit higher up in midfield for Milan, where he really 
he was he was a monster in that game. He was so good, and and he could have had a great career in that position. I think he ended up playing mostly uh, for France, for example, at the back, winning all those trophies too. But in midfield, he really had something. He had the physicality, but also was quite good on the ball. And and that final, I thought I thought he bossed the game from start to finish. But to pick up on the arrogance of Barcelona, um, one of the kind of selection choices that Capello had to make before that game was whether to play Desailly in defence or not, play him in midfield as he as he eventually did. And again, Stoichkov was asked about the prospect of facing Desailly, and he said, "Well, I played him played against him twice with Bulgaria. We beat them two 0 in Sofia and two one at the Parc des Princes in France." So I mean, it was again kind of clear like we have nothing to fear from this. Um, it doesn't matter. Who's playing at the back? If it's Desai, all the better. We are going to win this game. And, uh, well, they got, uh, they got a clown suit put on them. That game was very iconic as well, uh, because France uh, couldn't qualify for the World Cup. Let's not go Bulgaria. there. Let's not go there. Just, this is not the subject <laughs> of today's uh, show. Alvaro, what did they say in Spain after this? In, in Italy, I think a lot was made of the fact that Michael Laudrup didn't play, that the fact that Desai was there in midfield meant that he could shut down Pep Guardiola, effectively starve Homario, who didn't have a single shot in the whole game, and Stojkov of any, any service. Well, I, I remember that the uh, Spanish press couldn't believe it. Uh, Barcelona fans were devastated. And I've been uh, reading a couple of reports from the day after the game, and both of them had a sentence that you will, you will not read anymore. Uh, the sentence said, the foreigners didn't make a difference because at the time, if you had foreigners in your, in your squad, it's because they were very good. Otherwise, you wouldn't sign them because you could only play three of them. So there was a lot of criticism on uh, Stoichkov, Romario, and a little bit less on Ronald Koeman. This is a game that uh, had a tremendous consequence for Barcelona, and a few players had, uh, after the game, a great cloud on top of them. Uh, Zubizarreta being one of them, Laudrup being an, one of them because he didn't play in that final, and, uh, and then he went uh, to Real Madrid that summer. Was that a direct consequence? Yeah, Michael Laudrup was very, very angry with Johan Cruyff throughout the 93-94 season. And I think that not playing the Champions League final was a little bit the sherry on top of the cake. So, uh, you know, after that game, everybody played their cards. Uh, the club, the players, uh, the manager. Uh, you have to know when to hold them, when to fold them. Uh, as the song says, when to walk away and when to run, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, many players understood that that was a moment to... To make a move. And uh, Johan Cruyff also understood that he had to just uh, change the squad. That summer he made some signings that didn't make any sense. Uh, he brought uh, Kornejev, Skurza, Jika uh, Haji, who was a player that never, never fitted for Barcelona. Michael Ladrup le- left in summer. Then uh, in January, Romario left as well because he had problems with Johan Cruyff. And in the 94-95 season, Barcelona ended up having only 46 points. I know that a victory was uh, giving you only two points in the past, but uh, still, it wasn't enough. So I think that uh, in the same way that the defeat at Anfield in 2019 for Barcelona had an impact on everything they did the summer after, what happened in summer 94 had a tremendous impact on Barcelona's next five years. Alvaro, they wouldn't win another piece of silverware under Johan Cruyff, who uh, left the club in bitter circumstances two years later. And by the way, nice reference there to the gambler. Uh, rest in peace, Kenny Rogers. Milan, by contrast, would be back uh, in the final the following season. But this evening here in Athens, would you say, James, that that was the greatest ever Champions League or European Cup final performance? 
I think it it was um, just because the the odds seem so stacked against uh, Milan. No one was expecting it. No one was expecting a four nil win from a team that, as you mentioned, had only scored thirty five goals um, all season um, and seemed to be at the end of a cycle under 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 Fabio Capello. Even though they just won the league um, again um, in Serie A, um, the Dutchman had gone. Um, they were a markedly different side in terms of in style from one year on the Capella to the next. And I suppose what's really interesting about this this win and its place in history is that Capello had got the team to the final the year before. He got the team to a final again the year after. And those were probably more winnable games, I suppose. If you look at the Marseille side that they played against, I think Milan were favourites for that. That Ajax team was seen as young and inexperienced, even though we're playing a football that was really exciting across all of Europe. And it was, I suppose, with Capello, I think it's his only Champions League win um, as well. So to win it that emphatically with those kind of depletions, I think it's always had a very fond place in the heart of the Milan hierarchy as it was at the time, like Adriano Galliani, for example, going to bed with the cup. Athens has become a very special place for Milan fans, um, not only because yeah they won the Champions League there, but also they got their revenge against Liverpool there in 2007 and Galliani got to sleep with the cup again. Um, so I think it probably does go down as, along with the, the Barcelona performance against Man United on the Pep Guardiola, probably the felt like the most one-sided final which shouldn't have been as one-sided as it was or at least not for that one side Jules yeah. what are we going to do next week should we continue and do 94-95 um, because talking about Barcelona and, and Milan as well PSG would face Barcelona in the quarterfinals in the Champions League a game that I was at in the second leg at the Parc des Princes a young very young me and then lost did to they Milan lose the, the second leg <laughs> no they didn't for once so <laughs> shut up uh, but then they would lose to Milan in the semi-final anyway. Yeah, spoiler alert on that. Uh, brilliant. All right, well, so we'll continue our uh, progress through the early years of the Champions League next time out in uh, next Tuesday's Totally Football Show. Between now and then, uh, who's got some big plans? Well, James, I hope to talk to uh, Sven Goran Eriksson some stage over the next week. Brilliant. Um, 20 years since Lazio won the, uh, won the league. So we'll see what Sven's got to say, what memories he's got. Uh, we'll toast that together. Toast life, Kaiser. There you go. Nice. Well, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how that goes in next week's show as well. Will do. Try and squeeze that in. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today, James, Julian and Alvaro, and you, listener. More Totally Football Show on the way uh, this Thursday. There's also part two of our Berlusconi special, in Golazzo uh, dropping on Wednesday morning so uh, why not give that a listen uh, for now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the Totally Football Show a Muddy Knees Media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at the Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too thetotallyfootballshow.com Marini's Media.